0: Um, so before we start, I would like to thank LSE events for the effort they put in in making this event happen. Uh, I would also like to thank all the, mem- all the board members from the LSESU Energy Society for all the great work they've put in into making this year one of the most successful ones for the society. What made us successful was the work ethic that we and many other students here at the LSE live by, namely to always try and do a little more than what is expected of you and and to always remain humble towards the people around you. Remaining, oh, being significant and maintaining humility is what I believe best describes our guest speaker of today, Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Despite the many guest lectures that he has given around the world, his response to my invite to our university was met with such great excitement that it felt like if it were to be his very first lecture ever given. So, Our email correspondence, I think, only took around 11 minutes, and here we are three weeks later. The guest lecture will be chaired by Stuart Corbridge, who is the Pro Director of the LSE and Professor in International Development. Before handing the floor over to Professor Corbridge, please join me in welcoming both these esteemed professors today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Alex, and thanks very much for setting this up. Uh, as Alex said, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here. It's a great pleasure to have you all with us this afternoon for the talk by Professor Jeffrey Sachs on uh, what is sustainable development and how can we achieve it. Um, you are very welcome to tweet through this, and I gather the hashtag is LSE development. But if you could turn your phones to the silent mode. That would be helpful. Usually I have a large set of notes to help me introduce uh, people speaking at LSE, but I'm going to try and do it more or less without notes because I think Jeffrey Sachs is somebody that we all know and in a sense needs no introduction. But of course he's going to get one anyway. Um, Jeffrey was a full professor of economics at Harvard University at the age of 28. Now to any academic that is an extraordinary achievement and gives you a sense of the intellectual standing of our guest speaker today. I first became aware of Jeffrey's work, I think, in the 1980s when he was working on trade and debt and stabilisation, particularly in the wake of the Latin American debt crisis. He advised famously and successfully the government of Bolivia in the mid-1980s how to deal with the crisis of hyperinflation there. And, of course, soon thereafter, as we began to move into transition economies in the post-communist world, Uh, Jeffrey Sachs was a notable, perhaps, I think, by some distance, the most notable advisor to a number of transitional countries, including uh, Boris Yeltsin's Russia. He did become associated, and he's fought back against this association with the phrase, the big push. Um, But his work in that part of the world has had tremendous implications and, of course, continues to do so. Those of you that know your development studies or development economics will know that really since the mid-1990s, Geoffrey, sometimes with collaborators, has been associated with what I would call the the bad geography thesis. Uh, This is fundamentally the idea that many of the problems of countries close to the equator are a result mainly of tropicality, of poor climate, of poor soils, of bad disease pathologies, rather than, say, uh, the consequences of history or institutions. Uh, it is a controversial thesis. Geoffrey's uh, had many debates with people like Bill Easterly on this matter. But it's very important, I think, to note that Jeffrey is not a geographical determinist. The way I read your work, and I might be wrong and open to correction, is that this is a very Promethean view, of the capacity of human beings in a concerted fashion to overcome geography. Using expertise, foreign capital, foreign aid, we can build roads, we can build railroads and new ports, and we can overcome some of the problems of schistosomiasis or malaria. And Geoffrey's work around this intellectual agenda, of course, has been coupled to his work on the Millennium Development Goals and the advice that he has given... Uh, for more than a decade now, to successive Secretary-Generals of the UN. I'm thinking particularly of Kofi Annan and now Ban Ki-moon. This is an extraordinary CV, an extraordinary achievement. I I was thinking this morning, uh, as I was catching the tube into LSE, if I could think of an economist who has had more public impact in the last 20 or 30 years than Jeffrey Sachs. I couldn't. I can't think of an economist who's had a more determined agenda of connecting knowledge, intellectual work, to the public good than Geoffrey Sachs, really since the time of Maynard Keynes. So with that note in mind, um, it's a real great privilege and pleasure uh, to introduce Geoffrey this afternoon. Geoffrey's going to speak for about 30 or 35 minutes, uh, and then we'll move into Q&A. So... No further ado, Jeffrey Sachs.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you, and uh, thanks for the chance to be back at LSE. And the truth is, if you'll invite me, I'll be here uh, because this is just one of the most wonderful places uh, in the world, in in my view, and for me, in my career, one of the high points uh, each time of the chance to uh, share some ideas and as I was thinking about uh, coming today, uh, I was thinking about the fact that i I do view you as future leaders. Uh, you have a lot of responsibility. this is not a game uh, this field, and your studies, the fact that you 're here, puts you into a unique situation of responsibility, and every time I come, and especially as I get more gray hair and uh, continue to talk, I feel like I'm giving you homework assignments, Um, and I'm going to give you some homework assignments today. Uh, One of the greatest pleasures I had was giving the Robbins Lectures 20 years ago here in uh, the early 1990s when the assignment was uh, make a market economy uh, because you had uh, a large part of the world that because of a historical accident, in my opinion, and a terrible derailing of uh, human freedom and uh, a lot of bad luck and two bloody wars um, had uh, ended up in a socioeconomic context, which was pretty much disastrous, and Europe had the chance in the early 1990s to reunify and it was a great excitement for me to share ideas about how that could work uh, in uh, in the Robbins lectures and I felt at the time, as I had worked in Latin America and worked in Eastern Europe and then former Soviet Union, that the world really was coming together into a single economic space and uh, also with engagement in China and India, I felt I was watching in close hand the globalization really taking form and seeing what it really meant to have a, a global economy and global society. When I came uh, again ten years later, though there were many visits in between, but uh, the next high point for me in a way was the birth of the Millennium Development Goals, and in a essence, it was another message which I felt needed to be a counterpoint to the earlier one because I never felt, and yet some people did believe, that making markets in Eastern Europe meant that the market economy was the essence and end of economic organization. Yet what I believed and what I think uh, the great economics literature and history has shown always is that a mixed and balanced society of markets, state, and civil society is at the essence of uh, social and economic health. And one of the things that the Millennium Development Goals signaled was implicitly at least a statement that markets alone were not sufficient, that one needed to direct attention and public investment towards the needs of the poorest of the poor. And uh, as you just heard, I'm a believer that there is such thing as a poverty trap, Uh, not just one, but many uh, aspects of that. I have stood in lots of villages in northern Mali or in Yemen or in many other places. And I must tell you, uh, the Anada conditions do not apply. Uh, that means if you've studied uh, growth theory, the marginal product of capital, when you have none of it, is not infin- infinite. It's closer to zero. Uh, there really are problems uh, at very low levels of income when there's no infrastructure, uh, when there's no public health, when the water is scarce, when climate is tough, when the mosquitoes are biting, uh, when there are no roads uh, to uh, the ports, when there's no rail, uh, when there's no uh, – coal or diamonds or gold or oil under the ground uh, to uh, rescue you because some investor is easily going to come in. And the idea that it's just willpower alone seems to me to be extraordinarily <coughs> naive. And I would like to take a lot of my colleagues by the scruff of the collar and push them to these places and say, okay, stop complaining. You solve the problem <coughs> because I think a lot of theory that says, well, let's blame the governments or the poor or whatever for their problems is a serious mistake. But in any event, the message in the early 2000s was we need public investment directed towards the needs of the poorest of the poor to complement this globalization process. Today, I want to make the assignment one step harder. Markets are not enough. Fighting poverty is not enough. It's not a surprise. We do have global, planetary boundaries which are real, severe, and in your generation's time will be the most pertinent, perhaps, of the challenges that need to be faced economically. And this makes a huge difference in how we think about economic development, global objectives, and our prospects. Because, again, markets are wonderful when they work. You got to love them. No one has to organize them. Uh you don't need uh, even an auctioneer. Uh you don't uh, even need an invisible hand. Uh you uh, just need a uh, lot of uh, private greed which is in abundance. Uh and uh you you need uh, people pursuing their own wants which is also about the easiest thing in the world to mobilize, and when those combinations fit and some other technical conditions like some competition applies, uh, markets are absolutely wonderful. But when those conditions fail, then we have very, very serious problems, and that's what makes economics the most interesting, in my view, is the public economics side which is markets are easy to understand and they're beautiful, but the fallacy is to fall in love with simplicities and fail to appreciate the complexities. And the complexities involve both issues of static and dynamic efficiency. In other words, how economies evolve over time, especially when knowledge and technology are at the center because those are not normal goods, knowledge and technology, they have very distinct uh, uh, attributes, especially their non-rivalness that makes them very different from normal uh, private economic goods, and also profound challenges of equity. Um, And we know that income distribution in the world is awry in many different ways at our own time, because our societies are highly unequal within our societies because the world is shockingly unequal uh, between the wealth that you can see anywhere in this neighborhood compared to the extreme poverty that you can see in a lot of parts of the world, and that's a puzzle and a moral challenge for us, but also intergenerationally because we really are uh, here for a pretty brief time and part of our responsibility is – to uh, make sure that we're not uh, the the last generation on a healthy planet. And because of size and scale of the world right now, we risk exactly being that. Uh, So we have some unique challenges here. So I want to put my remarks today in this context of progression. Globalization became a reality in the early 1990s. On the whole, it's a powerful and dynamic reality. I believe in globalization because I believe in a world of openness of ideas, trade, movement, finance, uh, and think that we can get a lot out of uh, a global society. Ten years later, the issue was how many parts of the world were falling off the edge in that new globalization, not necessarily caused by globalization, but at a minimum, neglected by it because markets are really trained to ignore poor people, by and large. And really good businesses are especially trained to ignore people who can't buy their goods. And so poor people can die in highly efficient markets, and the MDGs were really about that. And today I want to talk about this added dimension, which of course we've known about since 1798 at one level because uh, Thomas uh, Robert Malthus gave us some hints that uh, there were planetary constraints to population. And he wrote when there were 800 million people, and now there are 7.2 billion people on the planet. So there's been a ninefold increase since Malthus warned us about population. If you've taken a mainstream economics class, you've learned how Malthus was wrong. Malthus has not yet been proven wrong by any means because we have not yet achieved a sustainable food supply even much less a sustainable economy so Malthus still hovers over us as a warning uh, and we're not there yet uh, in in terms of uh, a, a, a an ultimate resolution of this question um, but we've known not since not only since Malthus but Uh, since uh, limits to growth in 1972, since the first World Summit on Environment and, and Development in Stockholm in 1972, since the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, and since the Rio Plus 20 Summit last June, that we do have a kind of collision course between global economic growth, which has been accelerated by globalization, to be sure. Without question, globalization is the friend of development growth because we have a speeded-up, catching-up process, of which China is the exemplar, but we also now have increasingly a collision course with with the natural environment. I was a uh, freshman in college in 1972, uh, and the first book we read was Limits to Growth. Uh, Has anybody here read Limits to Growth? Is it assigned? How many people never heard of it, by the way? Okay, Limits to Growth was a very influential book uh, written in 1972 which said that the world will face a calamity if it continues on a kind of business-as-usual growth path because it will run out of resources. It will face critical limitations. When it was written, the limitations that it looked at were limitations of uh, physical supplies of commodities. Now we would look at a different kind of limitation, the limitation of the atmosphere to be able to absorb greenhouse gases, for example, or the functioning of ecosystems, the ability of rivers and estuaries to dissipate fluxes of nitrogen and phosphorus. Limits to growth said that with exponential growth in the world economy and a finite earth, we were bound to hit barrier, which was exactly the point that Malthus had made. Malthus basically is a book about comparing exponential growth and linear growth uh, and saying that exponential growth always wins uh, in the end so that there are limits uh, and problems. And limits to growth made the same point. Now, I was assigned that book as a freshman uh, in my introductory economics class, mainly so the professor could laugh at it. Uh, because we were told at the time, this is silly. This is a model that doesn't have prices in it. As commodities become scarce, their price will go up. That will generate substitution, efficiency, uh, and uh, 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 innovation, and so forth, and don't those modelers down at MIT, that was part of the point. I was a student at Harvard. Uh, So don't those modelers down at MIT know any economics? Uh, They were not in an economics department. They were in a social dynamics department. But that's haunted me. Uh, And uh, a lot of what I learned in economics has haunted me over the years uh, because uh, there are a lot of simplifications that are snuck in Uh, to uh, the deal early on and that uh, weigh on you for the next 40 years uh, as you think about these problems uh, and you realize that an innocent uh, thing – who knows the Anata conditions here, by the way? Anybody? No, you don't know the phrase. Who studied the solo growth model? Anybody still study the solo growth model? Okay, and do you learn that the curve is very steep at the origin uh, and that it has to cut – uh, from above the uh, NK line uh, so that you get a single unique equilibrium to growth. And the ANADA condition is the definition that the marginal productivity of capital is very, very high in very poor countries. You've got great things to invest in, after all. Uh, and, uh, of course, it's nothing like that in the real world of development in general, that you have all these wonderful investment opportunities. You spend most of your time scratching your head, how the hell do you get out of this extreme poverty? And so these models are very important, but they're very limiting also. So you should grapple with them all through your life. Uh, What you're told is half right. Your job is to figure out which half uh, and uh, use the right half and, and then make sure that you're amending it. So I'm not going to go through a lot of PowerPoints. I'm just going to talk, actually. Uh, We're facing a different kind of challenge right now. And the challenge is that globalization, broadly speaking, has brought together 7 billion people in the world economy. It has created pretty rapid economic growth in the developing countries, which are about... 6 billion of the 7.2 billion people. Average growth is roughly 5 to 6 percent per year in the emerging world or the developing countries. It is now quite slow in the high-income world. These are signs of economic maturity and the fact that, indeed, the marginal product of capital at some point does uh, diminish uh, after all the complexities uh, at the low level, um, once you become pretty rich as uh, Britain is and as the US is and as Europe is, and you're now integrated with a more capital-scarce region which has overcome by and large the problems of extreme poverty except for pockets that remain, this has led to a world in which the developing world is growing rapidly, the rich world is growing if at all, very slowly. Uh, This is not a business cycle, by the way. This is a structural phenomenon that we're observing in in the last uh, years and will persist for quite a while. But overall, economic development is very rapid right now. Uh, The global economy is growing at about 4 percent per year. That means a doubling time of 17 or 18 years. That's remarkable for a world of 7.2 billion people and an average output per person of $10,000. So we have a $70 trillion world economy and it is doubling every 20 years or so. Now, we are now using primary resources at such a rate that we are hitting for the first time planetary boundaries in terms of ecosystem functions, atmosphere, oceans, primary uh, productivity of fisheries, of forests, and so forth. Up until one or two doublings ago of the world economy, humanity basically felt that we had a pretty elastic supply of everything we need for modern development. And the idea was that Actually, it's formalized even in the growth theory. Robert Solow is aware very much that growth requires energy resources, for example, uh, or land. But he didn't put them into the growth model. That's not because he's silly or even because he can't write a three-by-three uh, a three differential equation. Uh, I know, Professor Solow, no problem. Uh, it wasn't even to make the curve simple for you. Uh, It was actually because he said, look, these other things are not really a constraint right now over the last 150 years. You look at the relative price of oil, the relative price of gas, the relative price of land, we've got the commodities. And by uh, basic uh, theorems of economic aggregation, as long as the relative price of these other commodities is fixed and they're elastically supplied – I don't have to study them in the growth model. And so I'll simplify the dynamics and, and, uh, and get them out of there. Well, we are no longer in that situation. That's just a matter of the population having doubled and, and doubled again. And the warning was there 40 years ago. And actually, that Limits to Growth book is pretty clever because if you go back and read it, uh, it said that by about now, we'd be facing Real problems. Now, no doubt, it's, it was very simplified and it had mechanistic cycles of overshooting and then collapse of the world economy and there was much to criticize about it if you take it as a literal description, which you should never do with any economic model, which could never be enough to capture complexity. But what it was saying metaphorically and even in a way quantitatively was we will have a problem as global growth continues and then finally starts to reach some significant barriers. So what are those barriers right now? This is one of the great questions. But surely one of the barriers is carbon dioxide. And this is uh, was made clear uh, by uh, uh, Professor Stern's uh, study than uh, anything else that's been done. It's perfect exemplar of how to use good economics to demonstrate a, a fundamental policy point. The atmosphere cannot absorb all the CO2 that we're throwing at it through fossil fuel use without some calamitous effects which certainly are not part of anybody's economic calculation right now because there's no pricing of CO2 and intergenerational issues are not well, handled by our political system, by our own internal ethics, or by the markets. And so, Professor Stern's point is one of those key planetary boundaries. We didn't have to worry so much about climate change 50 years ago, and the technical way to say that is that the shadow price of CO2 50 years ago or 100 years ago was near zero, in that you could emit CO2, but we were just so small as a species uh, operation that the amount of CO2 we were putting into the atmosphere just couldn't do much, much harm, so we didn't have to worry about it. But now, with 7.2 billion people, uh, 10,000 per capita, we put in last year 34 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere, and when you translate what that means in the carbon cycle, that's raised the carbon concentration last year by 2.7 parts per million. So we reached 396 parts per million, according to the most recent data. And we know from the climate science and the modeling that that puts us on a trajectory easily to have more than a 2 degree centigrade increase of temperature above the uh, pre-industrial level probably were on a trajectory by the end of the century of 5 degrees centigrade or more. And for any evidence about what that would mean looks pretty catastrophic, actually, because our biological systems, our farm systems, our human systems uh, were all geared towards a stable Holocene temperature which has been within plus minus 1 degree for 10,000 years. and the more you look deeply at how health, ecology, pests, pathogens, uh, storms, food production depend on climate factors, the more you worry that this is a huge dislocation. And the evidence is quite overwhelming that we're already facing a tremendous number of extreme events, much more than, uh, than, than we're used to. I was just going to show you. That was uh, our fair city uh, three months ago, uh, New York City, uh, and that was Beijing uh, this past year as well, uh, and that was Bangkok uh, the fall before that. It's all over the world the number of unprecedented, one-in-a-century climate shocks already taking place, and the evidence – actually, I'll show you. uh, a very powerful picture made by my colleague, Professor James Hansen, who's the U.S. government's lead climate scientist, Uh, very outspoken, very worried, uh, and uh, not towing the government's quiet line. Uh, Basically, what this is is a series of nine maps uh, starting in the 1950s uh, on the top three panels and 2009, 10, and 11 on the bottom three panels. And it's world maps, if you can see, look uh, clearly. And what he did was simply measure uh, bell-shaped curves at each point of the globe for temperature variation over northern hemisphere summer months. And in that curve, he statistically demarcated the plus minus three standard deviation uh, metrics for extreme events and when you fit a curve with three standard deviation markers, you're fitting events that occur two out of a thousand times, Uh, so by uh, your choice of the metrics and then he said let's take the three standard deviation metrics for 1950 to 80 and see how actual outcomes are taking place now relative to those plus-minus three standard deviation events of the fitted period. And the bottom three panels show dark red areas as being places of three standard deviation excesses of temperature based on the 50 to 80 baseline. And what you can see is the world map is covered with red. Not surprisingly, uh, it's rather intuitive, we're hitting extreme events as the new norm. Probably five to 10% of the time, or five to 10% of the planet's land area is covered by a three standard deviation heat anomaly now, which is extraordinary. And of course it's raising sea levels, it's changing precipitation patterns, it's increasing uh, drought frequency, it's increasing variability of precipitation patterns, uh, it's increasing heat waves, it's increasing evapotranspiration, it's undermining uh, ecological functioning, and so on. That's just CO2. It behooves us to understand and catalog how this large human enterprise of ours, is hitting a range of ecological and uh, uh, and uh, chemical flux uh, and other barriers. Another dramatic one from CO2, of course, is the acidification of oceans, which have already experienced a drop of pH of uh, 0.1 units. But the tendency is that the pH could decrease, in other words, become more acid by or even 0.5 units of pH, that would probably devastate a large part of the marine food webs uh, because all carbonate species from uh, microorganisms to exoskeleton species to the corals, which are part of the uh, fisheries ecosystems as well, would not be able to build their carbonate shells because basically the acids change the carbonate-bicarbonate balance and make it impossible to uh, provide enough energy to work upstream to build the uh, exoskeletons. And so this is something, even aside from climate change, that is our current trajectory. Then we have the fact that to feed 7.2 billion people, we use a lot of fertilizer. It's inevitable that we use a lot of fertilizer because – there is no way that organic farming by itself could feed 7.2 billion people. It would be a wonderful way to feed a billion people, but we have 7.2 billion people to feed. And this means that we're putting on probably about 150 million metric tons of chemical fertilizer right now, and a lot of that volatilizes, and a lot of that leaches into the groundwater and it ends up in estuaries and it ends up causing eutrophication and hypoxia. And we have about 130 estuaries around the world which are among the most productive uh, ecosystems. That's where all the shellfish and so much uh, wonderful uh, provisioning for us comes from that are under absolutely dire chemical threat from nitrogen fluxes. And nitrogen fluxes now which is, on the human side, greater than the normal nitrogen cycle uh, is already – has many, many other adverse consequences. So this question, this basic question about scale uh, of the world growth and the finite limits, I believe that's our time. You know, Malthus wasn't right. in. The claim that he made—that uh, this was inevitable—that there would be a crash of living standards uh, back to earth because population would always uh, rise in the face of uh, in, in the face of uh, higher living standards to the point where it would pull uh, living standards back down. Uh, the greatest uh, uh, weight against Malthus is that richer households and richer economies reach fertility rates that are at replacement or less, so this is the great uh, feedback dynamics that ultimately can defeat Malthus. But what he was right is that there's a lot of population dynamics that have to be accounted for and we haven't figured out how to keep the food system, the energy system, uh, our other land use patterns consistent and sustainable over time. So energy is one. The food supply in general is a massive question mark for the world, which is really disappointing 200 years after Malthus wrote. Uh, And we've had uh, the revolutions of von Liebig. We've had the revolutions of uh, uh, the Haber-Bosch process for uh, chemical uh, uh, fertilizers. We've had uh... the green revolution we've had modern genomics and yet we still have no guarantee that we can have a sustainable food supply and the problems are the populations very large we have to define what a sustainable food supply means because after all is it good enough for the world to grow enough food if large regions do cannot grow enough food for themselves nor produce alternatives to be able to import the food. And that's the state of affairs for large parts of the poor world. They're just hungry, and there is no answer for them right now. Uh, so, And the Sahel is, a, is an example uh, of, of, that, uh, of that condition. But with food, it's even worse. We are overharvesting many parts of the global food supply, fisheries being the most dramatic example but we've also appropriated a vast part of the land area of primary photosynthesis because we use it for pasture or cropland and we've reached probably 40 to 50% of the total NPP, net primary production as it's called, for human use and that's pushing other species right off the planet into extinction because their habitats are being destroyed in the process and that's a massive, massive effect that's underway. Climate change is already destabilizing the underlying food supply, so we have no guarantee that the food supply is going to be able to continue. The Green Revolution, which came with the advent of high-yield varieties in the 1930s and 40s and was introduced into developing countries in The late 50s and 1960s, especially India in the mid 60s, that's really peaked. So the productivity from that has basically ended. uh, The productivity growth. In the meantime, there's a lot of uh, depletion of groundwater. There's a lot of poisoning of land. There's a lot of salinization uh, of uh, irrigated uh, uh, irrigated uh, crops. And there's a lot of risk of climate change on many, many different counts. And so even today, the idea that we can uh, safely, reliably see uh, food security for the world is a a huge open question and a major uh, global challenge. And ironically, of course, food prices are rising now. For food-insecure households, this is devastating but it actually can exacerbate problems because there's a lot of land grabbing going on in very poor regions because food is now a great commodity. Investment bankers and private equity and others uh, come in uh, and uh, buy up land with corrupt politicians taking land away from local communities and actually exporting food from food deficit regions. This is a point that uh, Marc Sen, of course made famous that famines can be places of net export of food because the local populations don't have the purchasing power to buy even the food that's produced locally. And this could happen in parts of Africa. They become so poor that they become the food zones for the Middle East, for example, which uh, buys up a lot of of this land. And the consequences would be devastating, of course, for uh, a lot of the poor local population. So food supply is a huge, huge question as well. And I'll say finally a word about population, and then I'll turn to conclusions in two minutes and open it up for discussion. Um, The population of the world in percentage growth has slowed down considerably from the peak growth in the early 1970s at a little over 2% per year to about 1 percent per year now, 1.1 percent perhaps. So that's why population, which was a big issue 40 years ago, really subsided as a as, as a policy issue for a lot of the policy community. Indeed, the concern became too low birth rates in Europe, aging population, uh, the crisis of uh, lack of workforce. These are not crises. These are healthy adjustments. This is wonderful news. I like longevity, first of all. Uh, and second, I like it more and more uh, as, uh, as time goes on. Uh, I like population stabilization because uh, actually the idea of a Ponzi game where the new generation always is bailing out the old generation is, uh, is, a, is, is a Ponzi game, uh, and it's not one that we should rely on. And uh, we've already overshot a comfortable uh, level for the world. Now we have to take some drastic actions to live within planetary boundaries. But there are parts of the world where the population growth remains very high, notably in sub-Saharan Africa and notably in rural sub-Saharan Africa, where fertility rates remain five or six or seven for the poorest people in the world. This is a disaster for them. And for their children and for their societies. Uh, they can't keep their children healthy. Uh, maybe a son gets educated, but the rest do not. Nutrition is shared uh, among six sibs, uh, and this becomes a, a huge loss for that generation. The parents are looking for security, but they're not going to get security out of this. And so, The trajectory for Africa's population is, if you take even a mildly optimistic extrapolation, what the U.N. population calls its medium fertility forecast, which has a gradual decline in the fertility rate, the 2010 revision of the U.N. population forecast is that sub-Saharan Africa's population goes from 856 million in 2010 to 3.3 billion in 2100, to about a third of the world's population from around 7% in 1950. I believe that this is completely inconsistent with Africa's well-being, with escaping from poverty, with environmental sustainability, with well-being, with food security, with biodiversity, and so forth. Something has to give. but. Everything I'm talking about, something has to give, but does it give the hard way through overshooting and crisis, or does does the adjustment come about through conscious, directed efforts? We know on fertility, for example, that if family planning is widely available, is publicly promoted, and if girls are enabled to stay in school through high school, you'll get a drop of fertility rates from five down to two and a half within ten years people want contraception. They want their kids in school. They uh, want uh, the right things, but they can't have them right now because of poverty, because of social uh, and cultural traps, because politicians are too afraid to talk about these things uh, or to act on them. So all of these questions, in my view, require a public policy response. Collective, global, quantified, science-based, technology-informed that gives us a sense of where we are going and where we should be going. And while should is a very heavy and loaded word because, yes, there are differences of values and ethics, the differences, in my opinion, are not so big as to be really the barrier to solution of these problems. I don't think that we're hung up because of value differences. I think our biggest obstacle, first of all, is simply inertia. Inertia doesn't mean being stagnant. Inertia means continuing in the same direction and in the same velocity. We actually have a dynamic world economy. But it's dynamic in a way which is breaking these planetary boundaries. So we need to change deeply the energy system. We need to decarbonize the energy system by 2050. But if you think hard about how to do that, while you can say, yes, that's wind and solar and maybe carbon capture and sequestration, maybe nuclear power and so forth, if you think about it and then think about the time horizon involved and think about the incentive structures and think about the – Uh, the uh, sheer momentum of engineers trained to do certain things and companies and incumbents that are doing certain things, it's almost impossible, I have to tell you. I hate to say that, but it's your job to do the nearly impossible on this. And you have to check carefully. Don't take my word for it. Make the calculations. What does business as usual really mean? And then the hardest part is you will see it's frightening, and you'll see what the climate predictions are. Then you have to take that morally seriously. You can't just say, gee, that's hard. You can't even just write papers, gee, that's bad, because that's not enough. And it's not as if there's some other place but professionally trained specialists that are going to do this job. The oil companies will not do this job. The politicians will not do this job. NGOs without the data cannot do this job. So that's why I'm nervous, because it's real, The time horizon is not our choosing. This is not a game. This is the only world, and there's good reason to believe that we are deeply, deeply stressed on the current trajectory. And the inertial factors are economic, social, political. All of them play into the difficulty of changing direction. What works in terms of the change factors are three things probably. First is technology is dynamic. So we have choices that are better than 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. The cost of a watt of solar power is now down to 70 U.S. cents. And it was $50 30 years ago. So there's a huge potential for new energy sources. And information even more uh, cost-effective because the cost of processing information's come down a billion-fold in the last 50 years. That's Moore's law, and we can make Moore's economy out of it. We can really do things in much better ways now because of the ability to access, process, and transmit information in massive uh, amounts. So technology is our friend, except for the fact that technology works in the other direction as well. I was with the VP of Shell yesterday. I know you had a vice president speak here. I think this was a different vice president. He was showing a uh, new ship, which is a floating uh, uh, LNG plant. Did he show you that here? Okay. Yeah, really frightening. Uh, you know amazing technology, seven times the world 's largest aircraft carrier, able to withstand uh, according to the claims a, a category five typhoon and what 's the purpose? The purpose is you can go over any seabed as far from the coast as you want drop your uh, drop your well there you don 't need a pipeline to the shore to an lng facility you 're just going to process the lNG right in your floating factory and then take it off a barge to China and that's technology amazing we can burn so much CO2 you can't even imagine (laughs) Uh, and uh, we've discovered how to get gas out of shale and we can do horizontal drilling and we can hydrofrack impossible reserves and we can free up every carbon molecule you can find and we can burn it And we can accelerate the amount of CO2, and that's also technology. So technology is double-edged, and it's not by itself a savior. It also accelerates depletion. And so you have to make choices, which we find hard to do, especially President Obama's energy policy literally is called all of the above. Are you kidding? I mean, honestly, Mr. President... That is not an energy policy. That is a lobbyist dream, which is, of course, why it's designed that way. It's designed absolutely to sound like I love wind and I love solar and I love hydrofracking and I love drilling on, uh, on uh, federal lands and I love it all. And nature doesn't care how many solar panels you put up. Nature cares how much CO2 you emit. So all of the above cannot be an answer to these problems no way, incoherent, pure politics, not human need. So technology is one of the factors that gets us in the right direction. Prices can be another factor. There will be increased scarcity, and that actually can be a signal, and some of that scarcity will show up not just in destruction of ecosystems, but actually in truly... Uh, higher prices of fossil fuels, and that will give incentives to renewables, though probably and certainly by itself not enough. And the, the last part is uh, that goes in our favor is human decency, which is actually people do not want to wreck the planet, and people do not want to do everything to maximize the shell profits this quarter. That's not our ultimate objective and most people know it, so that if we can put the facts clearly, if we can show the choices clearly, if we can show the quantified trajectories, if we can mobilize around knowledge in a sensible way, the difference of values will be the least of our problems, actually. Then there will be the possibility of moving forward. And that's the final remark. I'm way over what I wanted to say. but. Uh, or the time, we have a chance in the post-2015 agenda to put sustainable development clearly as a global objective. So we need bold goals. The MDGs are bold goals about poverty but that's not enough actually. Ending poverty remains a moral and practical priority but we have to put the environmental sustainability and the social inclusion alongside this. And that's what sustainable development is. And a robust set of sustainable development goals could help to orient the world so that the world would understand this is our problem, this is our challenge, and it's your homework assignment.
0: Thanks.
1: Thank you, Geoffrey. Um, I'm afraid we've only got time, I think, for one round of three questions. We have a hard constraint that we have to be out of here by 10 to 2 uh, because there's a group of students coming in for a lecture and it takes some time to get people in and out. Be aware that we're also podcasting. So we'll start with you. A uh, microphone will come to you. Please keep it short and give your name.
3: Thank, thank you for... Thank you for the um, talk, Professor Sachs. My name is Lisa Patoris, and I'm studying environmental economics um, at LSE. If we look at the global carbon budget that we have, if we're going to stay in line with um, averting global climate change or dangerous climate change, and we look at the fossil fuels that we have already found and are owned in stock exchanges, we actually can't burn what we have um, already, let alone be investing in new technologies to find more fossil fuels and shale gas and whatever else. Um, what do you think about the... Um, the drive to divest in fossil fuels, and do we need the to drive. be the drive to divest from fossil fuel assets? Divest.
1: Divest,
3: yeah. Um, and does this need to be more urgent? Thank
1: you. Uh, gentleman here in the middle. Can you just pass it over? Yeah. Just you. Thank you. We'll take one more afterwards.
3: Okay. My name is Mr. Stefano Bonfo. I'm from Oxford the sustainable development. I'm interested in more on the concept of strategy. In other words, you cannot have a sustainable development if you don't have a strategy. Second, you just mentioned data or information. I think in order to reach the sustainable development development and implementation of strategy, you need to start from data. And that's what is missing completely. We do not know yet, neither the climate, neither the environment. We don't know how to integrate different type of data. We don't know how then. We need some kind of pilot projects, demonstration project in a more comprehensive integrated approach. In order to implement, and this is where we need IT, special IT, information technology, like the Can new technology the question, emerging. Please. What is your comment about it? Thank <coughs> you.
1: Thank you. One more, um, perhaps in the middle there. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to. Su- yes, just do with a hand up. Hoot. T-shirt.
0: Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Julia, and I'm wondering. Why do you think this issue is such a left versus right politically where left wing people want to do something about it and the right wing politicians are not touching it and what can we do to fix that? That's
2: great. Wonderful. Good. Excellent uh, questions. Thanks very much. The fossil fuel budget is clear that we cannot burn all the fossil uh, resources or even proved reserves that we have without uh, great damage. So there are only two ways out of that. Either uh we get lucky, and uh, non-renewable – or I'm sorry, renewable or alternative low-carbon energy sources outcompete uh, these uh, reserves and strand them. Uh, so if solar power came down uh, much more cheaply and other resources came down cheaply, you could end up with the resources on the ground but unprofitable to produce. The alternative is, of course, to put the thumb on the scale. by. Uh, means uh, like regulation or the permit system, which I don't like very much uh, for a lot of reasons, or carbon taxation uh, that basically strands these assets in the other way. You simply can't use them because it's more efficient to use them in the alternative way. Essentially, we need to change the energy system uh, rapidly, deeply, pervasively to low-carbon. All of the studies that have been done on roadmaps to 2050 come to a similar set of conclusions about how that might be done. Probably we need a mix of renewables and nuclear and some carbon capture and sequestration, but there are big questions about all uh, in terms of uh, specifics and underlying technologies. There needs to be a lot of technological innovation along the way, but we need to make that transformation a lot faster than we're making it now. And for that, we need public policy that is absolutely, uh, I think, the simplest two parts of that are massive technological efforts in demonstration and in uh, R&D combined with pricing and regulatory uh, limits uh, and feed-in tariffs that are encouraging the transformation. In terms of, uh, you know, what does that mean in terms of uh, divestment? Divestment campaigns and so forth can be a a, a tactic on many things, but what's really needed right now are roadmaps that are credible, that are clear, that show what does it mean, how can you produce for a world economy the terawatts that we need to support development on the one side but to do it in a low-carbon manner. And I don't think we have enough of those roadmaps that are clearly – defined, so I don't think there's enough clarity about what the choices are. In terms of strategy and data, one basic point I I think you would agree is proper strategy does not mean knowing everything. Proper strategy is always optimizing in some sense uh, under uncertainty. So this is dynamic stochastic programming in some sense, meaning that you're making decisions under uncertainty you're designing to learn, so the more you learn, the more uh, you adjust your decisions over time. You can't lock in a single scenario. <coughs> we have a tremendous capacity to collect new data now, unprecedented, of course, the amount of uh, data that can be collected, geo spatial, satellite-based, uh, local human system-based. This is, should be, and it is already, the heyday of data. It's just that the advertisers are using it a lot more than we are right now. The advertisers know what everybody buys in every uh, in every village, or, or will know soon. But we ought to know uh, whether they're staying alive, how they're staying alive, what their energy demands are. Uh, we're in an age where massive data could help with uh, massive solutions to to the problems and information technology as it's reflected, by the way, not only directly in information, but in nanotechnology, in material science, uh, in energy systems, is so potentially vast. I was on a panel yesterday with a professor at MIT who is using viruses to deliver nanotubes to solar panels. So she calls it introducing DNA into non-biological materials. And getting improved performance of these solar panels by thirty percent because the electrons now have pathways to uh, travel at the lower resistance it's just, it's, it 's just that is an information technology breakthrough reflected in uh, in uh, nano uh, nanomaterials. This question about left versus right is a fascinating uh, question uh, of course the the right has many uh, purposes, and motivations, uh, and means a number of things. If the right means uh, deregulation because you're an oil company executive or Rupert Murdoch, it's not too hard to see what the motivations are about. It's just money. Uh, and uh, the corporate capacity to lie is probably the only unbounded part of our university. Uh, so uh, that's part of what is uh, what what is uh, driving this? But there's also a libertarian ideology. A libertarian ideology says, uh, "Leave us alone," uh, and that is the ultimate good. And uh, you know that by itself can be taken as a philosophical proposition. Strikes me as a, a very weird one to think that being left alone is the ultimate good. But in any event. It also is based on the idea that uh, the invisible hand will, will help us. So there's a, 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 a positive argument, a functional argument, that goes along with libertarianism. And it is contradicted by greenhouse gases. So there's a problem with climate change for libertarians, which is that you can't really have uh, a libertarian view and a reality of climate change. And so the solution in the United States has been to deny the climate change. Uh, this is uh, the way to reconcile the two. It must be false because libertarianism <laughs> must be true. It's half game and half madness. Uh, and, uh, it's, it, it, and it's madness that that's probably unfair. It's just very dangerous is what it is uh, because uh, to deny on the basis of a normative preconception uh, is uh, is really a uh, a profound problem. And the Wall Street Journal editorializes every week or so, so now they're going to tell us what kind of car to drive. And the answer is yes. Yeah, you get it. Uh, you, you can't drive an internal combustion engine that is contributing uh, carbon into the atmosphere and creating massive costs without somebody telling you something about that. That's exactly the point. So I think there are many different reasons why we see this left right divide, uh, in, uh, at least in American politics, but truly even that I do not believe is the essence of our problem in the end. I think the essence of our problem truly is the problem of the inertia of our thinking, of our institutions, of our economic life, of our infrastructure. We have ways of doing things that have evolved for a lot of reasons, often under the profit motive, and those by themselves are dysfunctional in this crowded world pressing against planetary boundaries. And it's not individual, it's not even ideology. All of the things we're talking about, ideology, vested interests, and so forth, slow an adjustment but they don't really determine the problem. The problem has come in a more innocent way, which is this is how the world economy has evolved. James Watt did a great thing when he made the steam engine effective uh, and we started to burn coal. He didn't know about the greenhouse effect. And even if he had, had he known, he probably would have said, well, that's a problem for LSE in 2013, not my problem. Uh, in the meantime, we need economic growth. And so I think our problem is the dynamics and the momentum. And there again, I believe the ultimate change agent in the world is knowledge. And so produce the knowledge, be more specific, more focused, more targeted, identify alternative pathways, help people to choose them, and I think we'll find our way. But time is short.